I'd like to start us off with a word of prayer, and then we'll climb into our text. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our Wednesday night uh, study where we have time to gather as believers to um, not just to gain knowledge, not just to increase in understanding, but to to really uh, engage and be engaged by a very alive word from you. Uh, I pray that as we look at Exodus 23, that while the context is um, different in many ways uh, for us, as opposed to where they were, um, there, there's much that translates. In fact, all of it has some implication, something that speaks to uh, where we are in our lives today. And so um, I pray that we wouldn't do gymnastics or or go outside of the purpose of the text to find that, but I pray that by the work of the Spirit, you would allow us to see that clearly. I don't want to scheme in reference to the Word. Uh, I really just want to submit to it. So I pray that you would help us to submit to it uh, tonight. I'm thankful uh, for everyone who is here. I'm thankful that, uh, that we have unity in Christ and that we seek to preserve it by um, digging into the Word together. Uh, please guide this time so that it's fruitful for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to cover Exodus 23, verses 1 through 19 tonight. We probably won't cover the whole chapter. Um, and then we'll pick up the last little part of the chapter and then all of verse tw- chapter 24 next week. Uh, before we look at the text directly, a couple of discussion questions from last week. How does our context differ from that of the Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai? What are some contextual differences? Modern technology. Thank you, Mr. Obvious. Yes. They did not have iPhones and internet. Yes, that's, that's very true, which would mean other differences, which would be what? Yes. Yes, post-cross, um, we have an access that, that's uh, unique to us and not, that, that they didn't have. In fact, they, Moses was their mediator in much of what they heard there at the base of Mount Sinai to show that. What else? What are some other contextual differences? Is there a job market in Greenville? <laughs> you might, that's a trick question. Um, uh, there is one. It's not a great one, but there is one nonetheless. Uh, there, I mean, they're, they're desert dwellers at this point. They're recently freed slaves at the base of Mount Sinai. And so there's not a lot of, you know, trade and commerce and sort of a community that they can go into and fill out job applications. So there's things that differ. And we saw that in reference to, to marriage and, and the ceremony and all that. What is the difference between, um, what are the slavery differences? Uh, when we read... Um, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, what are the issues that come to, come to light there that um, would show that we have a very different perspective on slavery than was meant in this text? Yeah. Yeah, there was a benefit. It was more servant. When we hear slave, what are some things that jump, jump out? What are some thoughts that come to mind when I say slavery? Yeah, held against your will, 
What else? Oppressed. Abuse and injustice. What else? Civil rights. Yeah, there, there was movements to, to do away with such injustice. So why would God say, when you sell your daughter into slavery? I mean, it's, it sounds odd. So last week we talked about how the context is different. And when they say slavery, we're really talking about servants. Um, so the context is different, but in some ways it's also the same, as we'll uh, hopefully see in our study tonight. Uh, last week, what are some of the things that God put in place to prevent exploitation and injustice? God put some things in place to make sure that injustice and exploitation were not perpetuated. What, was, what were they? Time limit. Yeah. What, what, tell me about that time limit. Yeah. Six years you serve, seventh year you go free, which is a pattern. Of, it's a creation pattern that is a recurring theme to remind us of who our God is. What are some other things he put in place to prevent injustice and exploitation? Yes. Yeah, expectations on the kind of work they would do. What else? Yes, there's a possibility of someone being redeemed. What else did he put in place? Yeah, rules on how to treat your slaves. What were some of those rules? Yeah, free in the seventh year. Free if you knock their tooth out. So the point was, the point in that text is not, um, is not God saying it's okay to beat your slaves in an unjust way. He's saying if you knock their tooth out, they go free. So they could owe you a lot and, and, and be working for you because of what is owed. And you would have to let them go free by knocking their tooth out. We talked about how Knocking in someone's tooth out is not hard. And so um, the, the, the situation was such that he's saying, don't, don't even treat him to that degree of injustice where you would knock a tooth out or where you would hurt their eye. Because if, that, if that's the case, they'll in fact go free. So God put things in place to prevent injustice and to prevent exploitation because he's a God of justice and he is a God of great, great compassion. Now, that's hard sometimes. And as we're reading these texts following the, the Ten Commandments, it's like, you read, you know, when he sells him, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, and you're just thinking, I don't understand what God's saying. This seems random. This seems just like hit this spot over here and cover this thing over here, and, and it just seems kind of all over the place. But the reality is, is God is very uh, detailed in the way that he is communicating to his people how they're supposed to live as freed slaves. And so um, at first read, you might think, well, why is he okay with a slave being beaten? And why is he okay with slavery and why is he okay with oxes goring people and things like that? And the point is he's not. He's putting things in place to prevent um, those to a horrible degree. And so uh, what did we learn last week about the importance of personal responsibility? If you dig a hole... Yeah, if you were negligent in something, you did something wrong, you're held responsible for it. If your ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, what's the rule? You put him to death. And, and um, 
you can't, if, if your ox gets out and gores someone and it's been accustomed to going in the past, you can't say, I didn't know, um, because they've been accustomed to it and you're held responsible for that. So what God is saying is there's a lot of details and he's in the, the title of last week's message and our study this week um, is sort of a part two from last week. We're going to continue where we left off, where we're talking about an invasive God. He shares the Big Ten, and then over the years, we, we've had a tendency to treat the following verses like we treat our 17th birthday and our 22nd birthday and everyone thereafter, where it's like not a big deal, all the good stuff's already happened. But these are really, really important verses, and it shows that God is, has every intention of invading every single part of your life, every single part. And we're continuing in that. Uh, where we left off. We concluded with, um, what we concluded with last week was allegiance to God will result in scrupulous attention to one's actions. You see people responsible for the hole they dug, responsible for their animals getting out, responsible for if someone breaks in at night and you shoot them or they wouldn't have shot them, if you strike them, there's no blood guilt. But if it was during the day, you can't take it too far. And there's like even protection for the thief there. And God's saying, I'm about justice. Don't, don't take it too far. So allegiance to God will result in scrupulous attention to one's actions. We will take every form of responsibility seriously with a particular aim at putting the glory of God on display by exhibiting His compassionate and His just character. That's what we want to do. We want to put that on display, so we want to act the way He tells us to act very specifically. Turn over to Exodus 19.5. Keep your finger in 23. We haven't actually gotten there yet, but we will. We need to take a look at Exodus 19.5 to remember what we're engaging in the text. And Exodus 19.5 says, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. This verse lays the groundwork for what his voice, it says if you obey my voice, this lays the groundwork for what his voice will communicate from chapters 20 on. So this section of Scripture that we are currently studying is showing that it is uh, what God expects from His people. It's not suggestions, it's expectations. Uh, One commentator makes a note, um, it is not a religion of humans just feeling after God blindly, but of God coming to His people. God merits entrance into all of life. They heard God's voice from on high. And the ground shook, and there were peals of thunder and lightning, and there was smoke, and they were afraid. And Moses had to be an intercessor to, 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 or an intermediary to, to speak uh, to God and with God on their behalf and then relay what was said. God is coming to them. And so that we're not talking about a religion that God is forming for a people that it's just them sort of reaching after God blindly, which is what a lot of people act like Christianity is, where it's, what is it? Well, it's just ethereal, nebulous thing where I just kind of hope for the best every day and reach after God and see Him in however way I can. He's pretty detailed in, in what He expects of our lives. And, if we, as, and as much as we dismiss those details, we can actually find ourselves dismissing God if, if we're not careful. So God merits entrance into all of life. So to take a bird's eye look at this chapter, we're going to see that God indeed has plans for His people that are very specific and extraordinarily comprehensive. God speaks to his plan and purpose for, listen to all the things that he speaks to. God includes details about the household, capital offenses in society, injuries to persons and beasts or pets, protection of property. These are all things that God is addressing as he's setting up his his people. Protection of property, finance, business, unsecured loans, interest-bearing loans, 
sexual malpractice, capital offenses in religion, humane concern for life, living under God's authority in state, living under God's authority in church, living under God's authority in your personal character, in your integrity, in your honorable dealing, your timetable of work and religion. God's invading all of that. So what we're getting at is essentially he doesn't leave any dark corners for you to dabble in. The point of this text is God's not leaving you any dark corners for you to dabble in, and he's not leaving you any dark corners for you to just govern yourself in and kind of wing it or, or fly by the seat of your pants. The workplace is not off limits to God. Your schedule is not off limits to God. Your house is not off limits to God. Your role in other people's lives is not off limits to God. Your finances are not off limits to God. Your relationships with people of the opposite sex are not off limits to God. It is usually the off limits areas that are steeped in sin. So God from the get-go, as he draws his people out of Egypt and is setting them up to succeed in their new freedom, He's saying every single part of life, I, I, tend, I have every intention of just invading. Because in the dark parts where you keep them out, that's usually where, you're, where there's sin um, being harbored, sin being dabbled in. And so as, uh, as children of light, we, we walk in the light. So look at Exodus 23 verse 1. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So, whether rich or poor, we do not show partiality. So, how would y'all say that the ungodly would use this to their advantage? How could someone ungodly use such a situation to their advantage? And why, are they being, why is Israel being warned about it right here in the wilderness? They're being warned about ungodly people using a circumstance to their advantage. How would that really play out? Thank you. I was hoping you would give an answer on this. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a phrase, you know, it's just business. Be careful as Christian people. It might just be evil. What's going on here is, is, is really backwards. I mean, what you touched on, I had a friend who he was uh, just had an average income and he had some circumstances that worked out and overnight he, not overnight, over a very successful few years, uh, he was a multimillionaire. And he said he went from knowing no lawyers to having six lawyers on speed dial. 
because people would just sue him. They'd just file a suit. And it was actually cheaper to just settle in some cases than to actually go to court. And so it's malicious. It's not true. But they would just file and say, well, uh, we're going to sue you anyway. And there were times where it would, be, it would be less money to just say, okay, we'll give them $10,000. Give them $30,000. And Christian people don't do that. That's not just business. That's evil. That's not right. That's against the character of our God. It's lacking in compassion, and it promotes injustice. So you can't do that. Um, we're children of light and truth, and if we act otherwise, we pervert justice. Um, so the question is, is why would it matter for a child of God to pervert justice? I sort of just said it. He's just. Represent his character. That's what he says. Notice also the mob mentality here. There's something to be warned against in this. I forget who it was. I couldn't find it today. But um, there was someone who said, uh, uh, don't ever trust the crowd. And it it was, I think it was a president. I I can't remember who it was, which is funny because he leads the crowd. But anyway, um, he said, don't ever trust the crowd. Here it's... um, you shall not join in hands with a wicked man uh, to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. The mob mentality is usually very lacking in wisdom and discernment and sobriety. Uh, did y'all see the soccer game uh, nightmare in Egypt um, on the news recently? I think it was today or yesterday where like over 70 people were killed just because unruly fans stormed the field with rocks and sticks and over 70 people lost their lives because of a mob mentality that took place at a soccer game. And so there's warning there. Don't just side with people because there's many. Romans 14 is a really good balance here because Romans 14 says, be fully convinced as to what you believe. And if you're fully convinced as to what you believe, you're not just going with the crowd and going with the flow of things because it might very well be the case that the crowd is wrong. Look at how many times Israel turned against God. Look at how many times Israel called out Moses. They called him a murderer. They didn't just say, you're not leading well. It's let's go ahead and just really turn this on its head. You're a murderer. You brought us here to kill us. So it's a, it, this is expressing if we're truly about justice and we're truly about compassion so that we're rightly representing the character of our God um, so that we can share the good news, we're going to be very careful in all of our dealings. So just because your whole company that you work for is doing something, if it promotes injustice, that may very well be the reason you're there is to speak against it and to step out and to say, no, this is not right, and I want to move in the manner that is right and is in accordance with who the one true God is. So be careful with that phrase, it's just business. Um, if you're a Christian, um, it may be, you may be the one who's supposed to say, no, it's, it's just evil. Hmm? Yeah. Yeah. Well, in our Thursday prayer time, you mentioned about praying for people that wouldn't just take cases that would allow them to just get reelected. Like, I'm just going to take cases to uh, to potentially, you know, pad my portfolio, and and I know I can win this. This one is more injustice, but I don't know if I can win it. So I'm actually going to take this. That's a perspective I've never had until I heard you praying about it. And so there's, there's a lot of places where that injustice can move forward, but you, you may be the Christian, the God-fearer, who is there to put the character of God on display by standing rightly in the truth. Look at verses 4 through 5. 
If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Is this a natural response? Okay, it's not. What happens when you bring your enemy's ox back to him? For those of you who have returned an ox, what happened? Do what? Yeah, you could very easily be accused of stealing it. And on the positive side, what could happen? <laughs> yeah, it disarms the enemy. Yeah, what would you say? Shocked? Yeah, confusion. You can, see, you can just see that person's guard being let down. Imagine if you had like a bitter enemy in your neighborhood and they return your dog. Be like, thanks, bitter enemy, for returning my dog. I, this is awkward. I don't really know what to say here. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, rethinking why you are their enemy, it may, uh, could possibly be something. So aside from someone returning your dog, how could this translate into our context? Yes, which is so easy to do, right? We just, we just remind ourselves of that truth and just do it, right? No, that's not usually how it works. Before we look at a few verses uh, reminding us of that and helping us to see it more clearly, what's the difference between one who is my enemy and one who hates me? Because there's a difference. Yeah, your enemy seeks to do you harm. Yes, or someone who hates you has the malice towards you, but the enemy, it may be, there may be a little, not a clear line. Is that what you said? I think we may have said the same thing. <laughs> You're correct. Um, Yeah, there's a number of things that uh, we call inconveniences that God probably purposes to be opportunities. Uh, a number of things where, I mean, imagine it's your busy day and something of your neighbors who you don't like or doesn't like you, you know they hate you, they've spoken ill of you, and there's a way that you can help them. You may say that as a huge inconvenience, but apparently God is putting those in your path um, as opportunities. Turn over to Matthew 5.44. I used to think these verses were important based on the slim chance that you would encounter someone that didn't like you. What I've realized over the years is that, I mean, if, if, if you truly stand squarely in the truth and proclaim Christ, that, that will be an inevitability. The words in Scripture are, provided you suffer with me, granted, the, or when you are reviled. It's not if statements. So I used to read these verses as though, well, well, if that ever happens, God forbid, um, I'll know what to do. And this is actually a pretty normal thing. In, in Matthew 5, 44, it says, uh, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I mean, 
Before trying to just really rip the verse apart and see what it means, let me just ask, when's the last time you prayed for someone who persecutes you? When's the last time that you showed? Yeah, yeah. I pray you get what's coming to you. Yeah. Um, praying for their well-being. Like, when's the last time you, you, you prayed for an enemy? When's the, when's the last time you truly loved an enemy? Um, turn over to Luke 6.27. When we read Scripture, we're not just trying to gain truth to know truth. The Word warns us to make sure that we're not hearers only, but we're, we're doers of the Word. And if we're just hearers of the Word, then we're hypocrites, is what it says. And so, a lot of times we, we hear a truth and we think we have something to say, but we haven't lived that truth. That it hasn't run us through. It hasn't become true in our lives. And so, I want to encourage you. These are hard verses, but make sure you're not hypocrites. Make sure that you are both hearers and doers of the Word, that, that you can rightly represent God. Luke, Luke 6, 27 says, uh, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. That's a, there will be opportunities to do good. First, look for those opportunities to do good. And, and then actually do it. Actually follow through with it. Turn over to Romans 12. Yes. Yes. Marie, that's a great point because, I mean, we are all too easily offended most of the time. I mean, when you run across someone who's sort of thick-skinned and not easy to offend, it's like an anomaly. It's like, wow, because we're so used to being easily offended or being around people who are easily offended and that reality that you just said that what is it that's, that's offensive and don't don't mishandle that situation, but love them for that very particular reason, that um, you want them to see the truth about Christ and not believe lies about Christ. And so that's a, that's a really good point. And Romans 12, actually, Romans twelve sixteen, 16, um, reiterates what you just said. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Usually, I am haughty when I'm easily offended. And so... Um, do live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Uh, never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If someone's evil towards me and I see their oxen um, under its burden and suffering, I could repay evil for evil and be like, ha, 
You, got, you had that coming to you. That's karma. We don't believe in karma. We believe in grace. And so it says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. That never really is hard for me. I'll just confess that. Never avenge yourselves. Do you trust God to that degree? But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the perspective to have in that circumstance where there's this thing before you where it's either an opportunity or in your mind it's an inconvenience. And if you let it stay an inconvenience and not an opportunity, then you're actually being overcome by evil. And that's why it says don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So God will give us opportunities to overcome evil with good because that's what he does. He overcomes evil with good. And so we reflect his character by acting in a like manner. There's a difference between random acts of kindness and intentional acts of obedience. There's a difference between random acts of kindness and intentional acts of obedience. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Platter of burning coals, perhaps. Yeah. 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 Yeah, we had an opposite thing happen. That's really good. Um, we uh, we had a, my parents. Um, it's weird. They live in a very Jewish neighborhood next door to Muslims. 
So that in itself is a little weird. Um, but it was Christmas this last year, and they had had their kids had had parties and stuff, and there were always beer cans left in the yard. And the result was that my parents were sort of the grumpy old people who were like, "Oh, y'all, you know, we're going to call the cops when you park in our by our driveway if you're within how many, you know." It just became kind of became really ridiculous. And there was one night where it was really bad, and um, I hope my mom doesn't listen to these recordings, but uh, my mom, the children's minister of 25 years, um, had to give the man a piece of her mind um, because it just got out of hand. And then it was like that weird, um, well, we just don't talk to our neighbors anymore for four years. This past Christmas, was it this past Christmas or the one before? I'm not sure. It kind of seems like yesterday, but... Um, there's a knock on the door. All of me and my brothers are in town for Christmas, and the Muslim lady comes over with gifts and gives them uh, to my mom and says something to the extent of, um, I know y'all are Christians, and Christmas is an important time, and it's about forgiveness, and I just want to make sure we're okay. And, uh, and so, oh, we have gifts for you too. They're right over here, you know, that kind of <laughs> thing. We were just about to come over. That's so weird. Four years. It's so crazy. We're Christians. We love people. Um, but it was ridiculously humbling because she was in tears. She, she said she had wanted to come over a number of times to sort of make things right. And um, she, she kind of was fearful and, and backed out and never came over. And so we're all sitting there very quietly after she leaves. And I was like, did the Muslim lady just bring us a gift as like a peace offering representing forgiveness on Christmas? Did that just happen? And it was like, she did what y'all did and what we should have done four years previous, or at least what my parents should have done. I'm not going to take all the blame for that. Um, <laughs> but it was, I mean, we should be ready for those things. We shouldn't be a people who are characterized as holding on to forgiveness very tightly until we feel like we're okay or holding on to an opportunity to do well for someone until we really feel like it's okay. Your feelings don't define reality. Too often we let our feelings define our reality. And just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean it is a certain way. It's sort of a recurring theme in the scriptures. And so um, we may feel a certain way, but the reality is truth is more important and we share and we love and we forgive and we do good as we have every opportunity. Uh, look at uh, Exodus 23, verses 6 through 8. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous. For I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. If you ever decide to entertain bribery, please remember this extremely direct and clear verse. A bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. What this is getting at is that your words can be the thing that leads to the hands of the executioner. If you share a false witness, you may think, well, it's just my words, it's no big deal. But it could be your very words that lead to the wrong punishing of someone or even the wrong execution of someone by the hands of another. And so the warning here is be just as careful with your words as you would with your hands. 
Be careful about the account that you give. The courtroom is not the final authority. That's what's being said in these few little short verses. The courtroom is not the final authority. Now, as Christians, that doesn't give you the right to to skirt the courtroom. Um, Romans 13 is very clear about being subject to your governing authorities in the area where you you are being governed. Um, So you can't get pulled over and say, I'm a Christian. Uh, I, I will not accept that speeding ticket. I'm above this. You can't do that. However, the courtroom is not the final authority. There, and what that means is that there will be some who feel that they got away with something in the courtroom. Some will be on the defense. Some will not be on the defense. Some will be the very people who are supposed to be leading the courtroom well. There will be some who feel that they got away with something in the courtroom, but those people, and we must remember that we will give an account to God. That's what's being said here. He explicitly says, I will not acquit the wicked. Whatever happened in the courtroom, whoever's acquitted, not acquitted, I will not acquit the wicked. So this mindset is in keeping with seeing all things in view of the will of the Almighty God. It's the same kind of thinking. It's, it's no matter what, I'm, I'm going to put God first. No matter, even if I could manipulate this situation, even if it's a courtroom, I'm going to put God first and do what is, what is, what is right in His eyes. Um, it's the same thinking that caused Joseph to say when presented with an opportunity to sleep with Potiphar's wife. He didn't just say, man, that'd be so wrong for Potiphar. When he had an opportunity to sleep with Potiphar's wife, he didn't just say, man, that that wouldn't be right uh, for the wife. It wouldn't be right for me. Where he landed was, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So what we saw in Joseph in that example is God was on the forefront of his thoughts. It wasn't just the circumstance. It was what's being described in these verses is a way of thinking that puts God first. And I'm not going to sin against God under any condition. I'm going to do all I can to be obedient to God in every condition. Um, If God's plans and purposes don't reach into every area of your life, you don't respond with such God-centeredness when no one else is looking and the flesh is raging. The flesh can rage in a thousand different ways. It can have to do with sex. It can have to do with money. It can have to do with influence. And if the flesh is raging in one of a thousand different ways and, and you have that dark corner where God's off limits here, um, there's no possible way for you to respond with the God-centeredness that Joseph responded with. There was no one else around. He may very well could have, could have just gotten away with it for the time being. But God is a God who says, I will in no way acquit the wicked. And so his response was, I will not sin. How could I do such wickedness toward God? Look at, verses, uh, look at verse 9. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner. You were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Israel, um, they had a really horrible experience in Egypt. And that horrible experience is supposed to affect the way they treat the sojourner. So my question is, how can this apply to you in your context? And I'm going to ask it like this. When, you heard, when you've heard Ben preach through some of the Egyptian things, the, the Egyptian history and Israel's history in Egypt, he talked about how we've, we've each, you know, in some way or another, have had our own Egypts. And so I'll phrase the question like this. Who are those sojourners that you could respond to rightly who are going through some of the same difficulties you've been through. 
Like what Egyptian sojourner is currently in maybe what was at one time your Egypt? So what are some ways that that could apply? We're, we're not just talking about loose term sojourner here. I want to define who the sojourner is. So how, how could you say, I was, this was my Egypt, and then see someone in that? What are some examples of how you could minister to someone in such a, such a way? What are some of the Egypts y'all been through? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that that occurrence is is huge as as regards the forward movement of the kingdom. What are some particulars? Yeah, we, we had that hard reality in a sermon maybe four or five sermons ago where you might still be going through the junk you're going through for someone else. Because at least in part, this is saying um, you were in Egypt because of a future sojourner that you would encounter. And so what you experience there, you, you're supposed to learn something from that, see something in, in who God is, and communicate that to the person who's experienced the very same thing you may have experienced before. And so what are particular ways that could play out? wonderful. It's Aunt Karen, you're correct. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, what you're doing is Psalm 9 talks about recounting the deeds of the Lord. And those two circumstances are insanely difficult. And what you're modeling there, be encouraged, and, and I hope others are encouraged by it, that a lot of times you get through your Egypt and it's, I don't ever want to talk about that again. I don't ever want to mention that again. I don't ever want to revisit that place again. I don't want to go back there in my head, in my heart, in, in physical being. I, I don't want to revisit that at all. And those are just a few examples. I mean, what you shared, what you shared, what you shared, where it's important to not dismiss what God did in some of the hardest seasons of your life. And part of recounting is saying, being able to look back with a sober perspective that you may very well not have during the hard season and say, oh, wow, he, he did see us through. He didn't abandon us. And I want you to know that he's not going to abandon you. No one who has ever put their hope in God has ever been put to shame. That's a biblical truth. No one has ever put their hope in God, has ever been put to shame. And so rather than trying to sweep the Egypts under the carpet or keep the Egypts hidden in the closet, um, it's a hugely um, God-honoring thing to humbly step out in faith and help someone else who may be a sojourner, who needs help that God has ordained for you to be there to give. Um, yeah.
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, as parents, I mean, a lot of times we can be tempted to just say, I just hope my kids never find out about that. I don't want my kids to find out about my Egypts. And, I mean, this is the way you share that. Don't remove God from the equation. And don't be flippant about it, but be very sober about it and say, he delivers us through these things. Um, I was thinking difficulties you've been through, it could be financial, it could be with business, it could be marital, it could be schedule-related, it could be things in parenting, it could be... um, Really think about the hardest trials you've witnessed anybody go through. And those can be Egypt's. Um, God is faithful at all times to all of his children. And so there's something to be said uh, on the flip side of, of each of those Egypt's. Let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, I pray that we would, um, I pray that we would aim to always walk in your truth. And I pray that we would leave here with uh, sober minds, uh, eager to obey. Um, I pray against the dark corners uh, that we wouldn't have any. I pray that we'd be children of light, ready to drag everything out into the light. Um, I pray that you would allow us to treat the sojourners rightly. I pray that you would uh, keep us about justice. Help us to be compassionate like you. Uh, Help us to love our enemies when everything in us says it seems like it's really counterintuitive. And uh, help us to uh, submit to your word uh, no matter what. All of us can come up with as many excuses as possible uh, to not do something that is undesirable to our flesh. Uh, But I pray that we would crucify the flesh with all of its passions and humbly submit to you as we present our members to the Spirit, to you uh, for work in the Spirit and for righteousness. Uh, You are great and greatly to be praised, and we get to learn more about it every time we open our Bibles. We uh, thank you for our time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.